0: I wrote a column for The Australian talking about Australia's quite substantial claim that it began the film industry by making the first feature on Ned Kelly. As the industry picked up a head of steam in the silent era, we had any number of very significant women filmmakers. Uh, Lottie Lyle, of course the wonderfully equally alliterative Louise Lovely and the McDonough sisters, all of whom have been recently rediscovered and celebrated. But tonight we're going to focus at the women in Hollywood. The Me Too movement shone a very bright light on the appalling behaviour of many men in the Dream Factory, it started with the uh, investigations and accusations of sexual assault against Weinstein back in 2017 and the dreaded Harvey was later convicted for rape and is doing 23 years in jail. Now, the lack of women in positions of power and influence in Hollywood has long been the case, but if you go back to the very early days, there were many women directors What happened in Australia was certainly happening in the US. In fact, in 1917, Universal credited eight films with women directors and in 2017, just one. So what happened to all these women directors and why did the studios stop trusting women to make films? My next guest has gone back through the history books to try and answer that question and how to move forward in the current dominance of men at the top of Hollywood studios. Helen O'Hara has been working as a film critic and writer for 15 years, editor-at-large of Empire magazine, and she's written a book called Women Versus Hollywood, The Fall and Rise of Women in Film, published by Hachette. Helen, welcome to our Little Wireless program.
1: Thank you.
0: Tell us about some of the women directors back in the early days. Perhaps we should start with Alice Gee.
1: Yes, she was a French woman who worked for Gaumont, who was one of the first kind of camera builders and and projector builders in France. And she asked to borrow his camera one weekend and made what is thought to be the very first narrative film. So Gaumont and the Lumiere brothers and people like that had all been shooting essentially documentaries, you know, train coming into a station, workers leaving the factory. And she went and shot a little story about a fairy finding babies in a cabbage patch, only 30 seconds long. um, But set her up and she started making, by some accounts, over a thousand films over the next sort of 20 years. She became head of film production at Gaumont for, for about 10 years and was was enormously successful in her day. And
0: from making a 30 second film, she goes on to make A Life of Christ and a version of The Hunchback of Notre Dame.
1: Yes, which were, you know, relative epics for their time. I mean, they were about 30 minutes long because it was still so early on in cinema's development, but they were they were big budget, you know, big event movies by the standards of the day. She she actually moved to America. She set up her own studio where she was producer, editor, you know, script supervisor, the whole thing, um, and, and really, really was successful for a while, but couldn't quite make it when, when film became a big business.
0: She made a film called In the Year 2000. And this is marvellous. <laughs> this was set in a world where men were sexually harassed by dominant women.
1: Hmm. It, I mean, it's not a subtle film. Um, it's very much, you know, sort of women catcalling men and, you know, th- not allowing them to drink in the pub and things like this. Uh, but, it, you know, it does make the point that she was trying to make, which is, look how unjust this is. Imagine if this was happening to you. Uh, and that's, you know, that's in about 1912 she made the first one of those. You know, it's it's crazy to think how much this was, the same issues were being dealt with then that are being dealt with now.
0: The first titan in the industry i guess was mary pickford who was the biggest star in the in the 1910s and uh, certainly one of the biggest earners
1: yeah, she was hugely, hugely successful. I mean, she uh, was able to name her own prize. She was able to choose her own directors, her own scripts. Uh, she worked hand in glove with a female scriptwriter who was also very, very successful, Frances Marion. Uh, and she uh, went on to be one of the founders of United Artists Studio. So she she basically took control of her career and, and made sure that she would stay at that level of stardom, that she would get paid the money that her stardom sort of deserved, you know, because she was the name bringing in the tickets. It wasn't, the studio it wasn't the director so she wanted that to be reflected in the way she was compensated
0: and of course her colleagues included husband Douglas Fairbanks and none other than Chaplin
1: absolutely and Chaplin interestingly one of the things I discovered one of the first people to you know sort of tutor him in how to act for film because of course he was a big Vaudeville star uh, was a woman. It was Mabel Normand, who was a very established uh, female com- com- comedy star at the time, and she helped kind of mentor Chaplin
0: through his first few films. So, remind us about Lois Weber.
1: Uh, well, she was—I mean, talk about a titan. She was one of the highest-paid directors in hollywood during the 1910s i think she was the second highest paid overall um and she was enormously in demand she commanded big budgets you know again by the standards of the day she was making essentially epics and she was making these very kind of thinky films about truth about sexism again about a you know, the evils of gossip and the, you know, the the right way to live, these kind of little moral fables. Um, But she was getting paid sort of like a Christopher Nolan. You know, she was considered one of the big intellectual heavyweights of of the 1910s, was this hugely, hugely successful filmmaker. The interesting thing about her was that she was, for many of her films early on, co-credited with her husband, And when the marriage broke down and people had to essentially admit that they were dealing with Lois Weber, that's when her career began to slide. Now, her husband didn't actually do any directing by all accounts, but it was having a man's name to sort of hide behind that seemed to be the key for a lot of these early women.
0: Here's someone who really believes in the power of film to change attitudes. And I learned from you that she became mayor of the newly built Universal City.
1: Yes, she did. So, Universal's uh, essentially their back lot and their studio was so enormous that they they it, they didn't t- legally incorporate as a city, but they called themselves a city. They held town elections. It was a huge publicity sort of a stunt. But yes, it was Lois Weber who was elected mayor at a time when women still couldn't vote, of course, in in most elections in the U.S. Um, so that was a big, you know, that was a big deal at the time. She did run on the suffragette ticket, and she did run arguing for women to be given the vote.
0: And she was the first American woman to direct a full-length feature of all things, *The Merchant of Venice*.
1: <laughs> well, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna go big, you know, go with the classics. Go with one of the. Uh, one of the Shakespeare plays, although, of course, we're still in the silent era, so it was a slightly cut-down version. But, yeah, she she was so in demand. You know, she was absolutely at the forefront of her profession at, that, at those days. And what's interesting is how almost completely she was left out of the history books when those came to be written. All the attention was given to the Cecil B. DeMills and the D.W. Griffiths. And this woman who had been right there alongside them in terms of innovating film techniques was just sort of left to one side.
0: And yet, she was a mentor for actresses and other women filmmakers, and of course, and she was using techniques which were cutting edge, and then would be credited mm-hmm. to others.
1: Yes, so things like split screen, you know, things like double exposure, uh, all these things to get trick effects in your movies. She did a film called Suspense, which is still pretty. Creepy about you know a, a, a desperate criminal creeping into a woman's house, and there's a split screen so you can see the criminal kind of creeping around and the woman upstairs initially unaware that there's anything wrong. It's incredibly effective at building suspense uh, even now. But, yeah, she she did all of this and she she helped discover Clara Bow. You know, she was a a real mentor to a lot of women in early Hollywood, um, was part of this whole sort of gang who would have parties every Friday night and and give each other advice on how to get ahead.
0: We could also, of course, look at the career of uh, Nell Shipman, but let's move on. Mm. Why did women who were so successful in the silent era Why were they pushed aside when sound arrived?
1: they were actually mostly gone before sound so they, they started to go in the late 1910s and the reason is essentially that hollywood became very big business uh, films were getting longer we were you know getting up to feature length and that meant that they were more expensive to make which meant you needed investors and all of these investors were very reluctant to invest in women because they were all men they understood dealing with other men and they didn't understand dealing with women so People like uh, Giebler, Alice Giebler, people like Lois Weber were able to carry on for a few more years because you know there, there was essentially a husband there to act as a front man, and the investors could pretend that they were really dealing with the husband while the women, you know,
0: got there, busy w- in the there was an argument, and obviously nonsensical, mm-hmm. that women were seen to lack authority on the set
1: there was and that did become a problem as time went on it wasn't in those early days because it was sort of you know it was a lark it was fun but as time went on and and as as filmmaking became less of a hobby and more of a career you did start to get crew members who would object to working for women and that's the you know the case today if you if you listen to a female directors you will hear hear these horror stories about crew members pushing back constantly in a way that they don't with the male directors.
0: One of the problems, of course, for your industry and for, and for ours here in Australia mm. is that so many of our early films are lost and uh, yeah. a great many silent films, including those made by the women we're discussing, were destroyed.
1: Yes, they were. And I think part, that's part of the problem. And another part is the fact that, you know, Hollywood was obviously very anxious for uh, cinema to adopt sound when that came in and for theatres to invest the money in putting in sound systems. So they themselves made fun of silent movies. And Lois Weber's film, Shoes, which is about kind of poverty and desperation, was recut to kind of make fun of it. And, and they put a crazy sound, uh, you know, soundtrack over the top. And that, so all of that conspired to also kind of do down what the women had achieved. It was all, you know, it was all dismissed as nonsense, as kind of teenage, the the awkward teenage years of cinema. Um, But because all the women had been pushed out by then, what they had accomplished was forgotten along with those early silent films.
0: Let's now jump to uh, the present time. Well, let's move Mm. on. If it was tough on white women in Hollywood, it was even more difficult for African American actresses.
1: Mm, Very much so. I think in those early years, there was a sort of African-American cinema and there were just people of colour generally who were making films. Um, There was an Asian-American woman called Marion E. Wong who got some films made up in San Francisco. Um, There were uh, black women in the South who managed to make films for themselves. Uh, Tessie E. Suter was one. For example, so there were some filmmakers, but again, with the silent era ending, they never got the chance with the big studios when, when the money came in. And then, uh, yes, and then even as actresses, black women were, were essentially stuck in maid roles and were stuck playing uh, mammies, you know, well, as in Gone The great the case,
0: the infamous exactly. case is Hattie McDaniel
1: is Hattie McDonough who won an Oscar for that role and had to be given special permission to go to the ceremony because the hotel where it was held was segregated. So she wasn't allowed to sit with the other stars of the film at their table. And indeed, they weren't allowed to sit with with her because several of them protested and tried to, to arrange that.
0: I was fascinated uh, in your discussion about the transition from the notion of film as industry to film as art. Can you explain why the rise of the auteur was bad for women?
1: I think it's because we are very quick to describe some people as geniuses and very slow to describe others. And I think the the image that a lot of us have of a genius is someone who is difficult, who is odd, who may be rude, who's almost certainly male. And I think women who get ahead in a lot of these industries are the ones who can work with others, who can communicate, who can conciliate, you know, who can, who can, bring everyone along with them. And we don't see that as genius. We see that as sort of maybe management or or being a bit too nice or being a pushover. And whereas the men are allowed to be badly behaved in a way that the women often aren't in Hollywood, you know, um, what we describe as impassionate in a man is described as difficult or belligerent in a woman. And so as the auteur theory kind of took hold and we started to kind of deify these male genius directors, I think it was an extra burden and an extra hurdle for women to overcome.
0: This uh, gives rise in your book to a detour to the Svengali directors who uh, mm. tried to mould their stars to their own fantasies, the, the likes of Bogdanovich, Preminger.
1: Yes. And Howard Hughes, who just he kept um, telling women to go outside and scream every morning to try and get that husky voice. Um, So you had him throughout his career trying to mold women into this idealized image that he had in his head that, that he wanted. And, you know, look, of course, there's a long history of people trying to make stars in Hollywood and every would be star probably needs a bit of a polish and a bit of training and everything else. But there is a particular kind of man who who does this again and again and likes to take credit and almost take ownership of the resulting career. And I think that's a peculiar thing that we haven't really seen very much going in the other direction. There have been a couple of cases where you can maybe argue for it, but generally speaking, it's these very powerful men who like to essentially claim credit for someone else's work.
0: We've also, also seen that in science, for example. Mm-hmm. Now, how important is it that uh, Jane Campion, who, of course, is a, a New Zealander we like yeah. to appropriate, and, uh, <laughs> and Chloe Zhao, winning Best Director of the last two Oscars?
1: I think that's very important. I think that's beginning to shift the image of what a filmmaker looks like, um, who a filmmaker can be, um, and I think I think it's really beginning to break down barriers. What we're seeing over the last few years is Hollywood realising that there is a case to answer here in terms of their, um, frankly, discrimination against female directors and, you know, composers, cinematographers, et cetera, as well but they're beginning to realize A, how bad it looks and B, that there is talent out there that they are letting go, that they are missing out on. And so we're beginning to see that reflected in who gets hired for jobs and we're also beginning to see it in who gets seriously considered for Best Director, for Best Picture. Um, There's beginning to be a shift in the kind of movies that are considered important enough for those awards.
0: I'm going to do something quite (laughs) reckless now. I'm going to (laughs) echo what Scorsese said about the superhero films as being (laughs) sort of an unfortunate detour. But you are scathing of superhero films in their lack of female representation.
1: Yes, I love superhero movies, I'm going to be honest, but I do think that there is a problem. I think what the problem is is not just superhero movies but franchise movies, essentially, and the fact that we keep remaking very familiar brand names, essentially, you know, Jaws, Top Gun, Predator, Terminator, Alien. Yeah, well, Aliens is an exception. But most of these have male leads uh, originally from the 80s. They have male fans who have grown up with them for the last 40 years and who want to see their old favourites back. And we keep seeing this over and over again where the dominance of these very old creations kind of, you know, changes the kind of, or or determines what kind of films are being made. So even the superheroes, most of those were created in the 1930s or 1960s you know, Superman, Batman, all the Marvel guys, and therefore they're mostly guys. There are more superheroes played by straight white men called Chris than there <laughs> are by women, you know, and that's kind of crazy.
0: I've been talking to the author of Women vs. Hollywood and Helena O'Hara. The author is emphatically on the side of the women. Women Versus Hollywood, the rise and fall of women in film, published by Hachette.